Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, baseball reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian... And a literature scholar... Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Will Cat be able to win this fight without Robber? Will we ever see more of this mysterious, wayward bard? Hey, can someone lend Hunter a hand? I'd bet Hawkeye would be willing. He's helpful like that. I never keep grudges. Not for long, anyway. Dread Empress, Maleficent II. Welcome back, dear listeners, to yet another week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Reddit. This time we are talking about a jaunt through the town, a lovely exploration of what Summerholm has to offer, which mostly seems to be violence. Catherine and her gang pursue the hunter and bumbling conjurer through the city. They fight a bit. More names show up. We end in mid-combat. There's some amputation. Usual stuff. It is a busy chapter and a hectic one, but... As far as time scale goes, it's like what three minutes. It's it's it's, it's fast paced. Speaking of fast paces, as they run through the streets, as we open the chapter, Catherine is worried about time slipping away. She says we might still make it in time if we hurried, and she contemplates what happens if they fail. If Warlock dies, even though she doesn't like him, she has to note that. Which great. Uh, that would not be good for the Empire. And she notes that word would spread slowly at first, but it would spread. And I can imagine that if Warlock died in an experiment on his own demiplane, things might be suppressed for a while, though it would have to get out given the nature of the story. But they could keep it quiet. If the Lone Swordsman kills Warlock, every peasant in Kalo will know of it by dawn. I don't care what their communication systems are. They will know of it by dawn. That would reverberate. And also, he's very main character monologue Yeah, there would be a victorious speech in the town square immediately. Like, battle could still be going on, and he'd be giving a victorious speech in the town square if he, if he slew uh, Warlock here. No question. And that slaying and that speech would lead, of course, to full rebellion rather than mere insurrection. Right. Uh, 
Kat accurately predicts that if Warlock dies to a hero, uh, Kalo will rise up. They will see that the Calamities are not invincible and that the Empire is not invincible by extension. People would reach for their swords. Now's the time to, to rise up. And Kat says, uh, or thinks, maybe once that would have brought a smile to my face. The prospect of the land of my birth fighting tooth and nail to gain back its independence. But I knew better. And uh, obviously we've got a little bit more to say on this later this chapter. But reading that, it there's the vibe of Kat's got a, a perspective on a rebellion here. And they're really only okay when they benefit Kat. The rebellion that's going on right now, great. It helps her. The rebellion that would happen if all of Kalo rose up, that's bad because it's no longer her plan. She's, uh, she, as much as she's fighting for Kalo, ostensibly and mostly truthfully, she's, uh, a bit, a bit of an egotist, I think. <laughs> if it's not her rebellion, it does it's not a good one. It's bad. That's not the only bad thing because it's not rebellion alone that's bad. It's also the after results of it being put down, which is when Prosser would strike, she thinks. She tells us that the knowledge that the first prince was funding the rebellion had not come as a surprise to me, but even now it left a foul taste in my mouth. Once again, Kala was a battleground where the continent attempted to keep Prace in check, and it would be my compatriots who'd see their lands ravaged for that holy purpose. Which, sure, except Kala doesn't become a battleground between Prosser and Prace after the tower's authority is unchallenged. Kalo becomes a battleground between Prosser and Kalo after the tower is successfully challenged and forced to, at least for the time being, stand down. Catherine's predictions fall just askew of what the future holds in a really unfortunate way. Yeah, I, she kind of predicts the result for Kalo if missing out on context i would say sort of <laughs> exactly uh but even including that uh cat is aware that she is fueling that fire or fueled it already by letting the lone swordsman go um and she obviously struggles with this decision a lot she spends most of the series thinking about that one moment uh at, at you know various points and with various frequencies because she, as she says, says here, still believes that the ends justifies, justify the means. And it is a brutal means that she is using to achieve uh, a kind of ephemeral end uh, in some ways. But she's also aware, like she's being honest with herself at this point and going forward about exactly what it is she is doing, what her means are. Uh, the phrase she uses that by bleeding away a few thousand lives now, I was securing a better future for Kahlo. This is a difficult thing for her, obviously, um, but she's blunt about it. She's honest about it. It's not, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of fight and there's a glorious warfare where my people... No, we are bleeding away lives, thousands of lives. These are people who are dying as the cost for this, not, uh, you know, as a tangential result or anything this is specifically the decision that was made and so so she's starting to come to terms with exactly what it is she's done to her homeland it's just a question of where that balance falls and whether or not she made the decision that actually is beneficial to Callow. uh jury's out on that one i'd say she's always willing to face it directly and yet her blunt appraisal of 
the prices she's willing to pay and the situation she's in translates relatively unfortunately, if I may say, to her appraisals of herself. She tells us that she'd sold what little soul she had to barter with for a sword and the right to use it to hack creation into something that suited her better. And we see this a lot. Catherine is bluntly and sometimes brutally honest about the damning choices she makes over the series. She pays many hard prices and pays long prices for those prices. But I just think it's somewhat tragic what low worth she gives to her own I don't want to say goodness or righteousness because that's correlated with very specific things in the setting, but her own uprightness, that sounds a little stiff, her own decency. Let's go with the value. We're going with value. She gives such little consideration to her own inherent value. She says, I sold what little soul I had. Why? Why aren't you worth it, Catherine? She doesn't think poorly of her prowess or ability, but she doesn't credit herself worthy. And that's a shame. I do wonder if she's putting a retroactive value judgment on her soul for having become a villain. I know that this is what she's talking about, that she's traded in her what little soul she had to barter with for a sword, specifically the power within praise. But I don't know if she's retroactively saying her soul has, or rather had, less value because she was leaning villainous. I, I don't know. It is, it is strange that she is putting so little weight on her own soul given at the point where she made that decision she was just kind of a regular person you know like an orphan doing her best to make it and to she had a goal in mind like she was just living a life you know it is i'm I'm not sure exactly where that lack of value in her mind comes from given how early it was in her eventual story perhaps she's internalized the narrative that callow has on the orcs Maybe, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, it, it's, uh, it is an odd one, and, and yes, I completely agree. It's a tragic one, and it's Pat routinely, like, she, she doesn't act upon a, a, a death wish, necessarily, but she doesn't place a lot of value on herself. She values herself as a resource like she would any other. It's a resource to be, she, her well-being, her soul, her life is a resource to be used and moved around and spent just like any other and she doesn't seem to have much uh, you know like she's always willing to throw herself into the place where her skill set is going to be useful regardless of the cost uh and regardless of the ramifications of at some points the queen dying uh i don't know she's she definitely has a weird distance from her own sense of well-being that uh i gotta say not particularly healthy especially at this point where she's fully a human and not a construct of a season you would almost think that she were some sort of avatar of contrition rather than billy who in these aspects i think functions a little bit as a wicked but good opposite to her lowercase wicked uppercase good yeah uh it's kind of this weird moment because Kat says the lone swordsman thought he was freeing Callow. And, uh, you know, as a way of saying that he's not actually, he's just sort of making conflict. But if you squint, the lone swordsman does kind of free Callow eventually. His rebellion is what gives rise to the Black Queen. So. Four steps down the line. 
listen, you have to squint, okay? <laughs> squint past the steps, squint past all the other factors, all the butterfly effects that are... The Lone Swordsman creates Cat as the Black Queen. Really, he's to thank for saving the world when Cat is involved with bringing down the Dead King. Thanks, Billy. Much like how we can directly hold Joan of Arc responsible for the atrocities of the nuclear bomb. Right, yeah, I mean, like, normal things like that, just normal understanding of history, yes. Fantastic. History is, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, entirely understood as cause and effect. That's... Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, one long chain of events where each event feeds directly into the next one, and the next coming event is not only fully predictable, but completely inevitable, given what came before. Fantastic. Just making sure. I. It's been a while. Yeah, no worries. So you know how Catherine has a little twisty view of things? <laughs> yes. She thinks that change needs to be carved into the very institutions that held nations together. Anything else would just crumble in the span of a lifespan when the individual who managed it by sheer force of personality died. And she initially becomes Black Queen, which is force of personality. That's not a change in institution yet by any means. Right. If Catherine died at most points in the story after becoming Queen, I don't know what would happen, but it certainly wouldn't be casual succession. But then by force of personality, she gets in position to put together the Accords. But the Accords are themselves only as strong as the force of personality she exerts to become the Warden, whose individual but heritable mantle kind of serves to back up the oversight governorship of namedness. And so she uses force of personality to change the institutions in a way that is founded on an even greater force of personality that transcends a single person, if I may call a name such, which I can, because I do. Yeah. I think that's cool. No, I mean, it, it, there is a distinction to be drawn, though, between uh, an institution like a state and an institution like a pretty loose, frankly, organization of named. Um, uh, it's... Yes, the her her the accords are going to be more reliant on the individual power and influence of the warden because that's how roles work. They are individual story based. States are going to function a little different, and I think I think that they I think her point here is a fine one that it takes institutional change rather than the abilities of an individual. However, that line blurs when the person of the ruler of a given state is without fail historically speaking named i think things get a little a little skewy there so eh, it's all blurry i think foucault might have something to say on this with the with the examination of the two bodies of the king in discipline and punish however i have been blessed to not read foucault in a few years so let's talk about summer home great catherine is trying to figure out catherine is trying to comprehend Catherine is raging at the swordsman's gambit here. She views this as holding an entire city hostage to kill a single man. Over 50,000 lives risked on a gambit that wouldn't even win the war. I, I don't think she is analyzing this the way Billy would. Not just in terms of the moral structures underpinning everything, but I don't think he'd feel like 50,000 lives were risked. Why are they risked? Either because Warlock goes all out, which evil's at risk of doing anyway, so he wouldn't really be starting it? Or is she talking about the risk of the magical feedback of the Goblin Fire nonsense? This is Billy. He didn't think that far ahead. 
he wouldn't care, but he didn't think that far ahead. He did not take the risk. The risk is being taken. It was not a choice made. It's, I think it's even, it goes farther than that for Billy. Maybe even in the, it swings in the opposite direction. I think in Billy's mind, those 50,000 lives are already lost by being in a city. There. It's a city controlled by the Empire. He is, what he's doing here is trying to save 50,000 lives that are already lost. He's, you know, I, I if I had to guess, that would be his perspective because he is a deeply troubled man. Citation needed? Uh, yep, heroic interlude. Also, every Citation time he accepted. Sp- also, every other time he speaks. Citation grimaced at. Yep. So remember how we were talking about chariots before? Oh, yeah. They barricade a street, or rather, they encounter a broken barricade where Catherine's legionaries had erected a barricade made in part of requisitioned chariots. Again, I am not a chariot expert, though I'm much more of one now that we know about chariots having different names by number of horses and blah, blah, blah. I just don't feel immediately that chariots would make the strongest barricade because the way it seems to me, a fair number of historical types of chariots wouldn't even necessarily be a sure thing against an arrow. Yeah. Uh, it's a boundary. It's better than nothing. Yeah, but if the idea of the barricade is force people to climb over a thing to get to you while they're in a vulnerable vulnerable position, and also them being chariots means they can be rolled out of the way to allow your own troops to move through them quickly, uh, they work for that. Right. They're left of a barricade and more of a, a speed bump, which is still it's valuable. Hugely valuable. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so, I think requisitioning chariots specifically as uh, <laughs> as a barricade is interesting when, you know, a supply cart would probably be better in every possible way than a chariot. But, you know, work with what you've got, maybe. And I think the requisitioning of the chariots explicitly for barricades, considering they're hanging out in a city. And I do not think... Summerholm was somewhat of a planned city, actually, so maybe it's got better... It's got chariotable, yeah, chariotable, chariotable roads. Or as they would say in Latin or Greek, hippostrata. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that hippo is the word that we're looking for necessarily. Oh, lupostrata? Because horses can go places without chariots attached. I, I don't know if you know this. The chariots are not permanently attached to the horses. They nail the shoes on the horses. They don't nail the chariots, too. Gosh. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. Why does just the worst animal also get the most valuable thing attached to it? That is to say, metal? Whose idea was that? Uh, people who like to use horses for streets. You know what? Look through history. Horses are just, they run away, they break, they're bad. I bet every society that used horses did worse than the societies without. That's an interesting stance to take. Also an interesting stance to take is to encounter a bunch of chariots and instead of climbing over them or walking up and wheeling them away, I don't know, just splitting them in half with brute force. Yeah, but if you have a big magic sword. If you have a big magic sword, everything starts to look like a big magic shield. Exactly. Yep, that's... Uh-huh. That's the saying goes. <laughs> um, yep, they uh, they move forward and find these chariots that have been broken in half. Uh and uh, uh, the apprentice 
makes a comment about we'll probably be finding the people we fought if we're lucky. And Kat has the thought that luck was for people without roles. Our lives were signed away to coincidence the moment we claimed our power. This is a weird thing to grapple with. This this statement she makes is a weird thing to grapple with because basically every noun in this, every noun and verb in this sentence uh, is really slippery <laughs> with exactly what it's referring to and how it interacts with the rest of the sentence because, I don't know, luck is for people without roles except the number of names that are specifically luck-based or fortune-based. And also, I don't know how else to describe a lot of the things that happen to named if you ignore the predictability of stories, except as luck. The coincidence, she says they're signed away to coincidence. The difference between luck and coincidence, I feel, is a pretty blurry one. I, I don't know, this is just a, a really interesting statement to make by Kat that at once says a lot of things about how she views roles and maybe how they actually function and also doesn't say anything. What is luck in a rigged game? I mean... What does it mean when everyone's game is rigged against everyone else's? I wish there were a seven-book series to tell us about it. <laughs> that would be really convenient right now. What would be inconvenient is dying from mage fire. Yep. Catherine finds some partially incinerated corpses and thinks for a moment on how it's horrifying no matter who's using the magic, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, killing is killing even when good people are killing bad people, if those are valid terms. But she tells us, there was no good way to die, but I'd always thought that mage fire was a particularly bad way to go. I'd like to remind everyone about Catherine previously in the war game, shouldering her way through mage fire, that mage fire seems to be significant force and in infernal terms relatively mild heat and so dying to mage fire sounds kind of like being pummeled to death in an oven not not i mean that like doesn't, a kiln that, but an oven that doesn't sound great no it doesn't that is a bad way to go i feel like being burned at the stake would be better than a mage fire death because that fire is hot but I would rather my I'd rather my death not involve fire, I think, just generally. I mean that's wise. Joan of Arc's death by fire was directly responsible for the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, that one checks out too. You're right. I've been reading up on all the atrocities Jonas responsible for. That's good. It's it's good to prepare for just kind of everything going forward, because really you can predict a lot about what's to come by reading about Joan of Arc. I would like to add a disclaimer for everyone. Joan of Arc is my favorite. Absolutely and forever. Oh, she's so, checkmate. You can't be mad now. <laughs> okay. They encounter the conjurer. They encounter the hunter. They throw the apprentice at the conjurer. Hakram and Kat go to the hunter. And as they go, Kat notes that Hakram slowed to calmly plunge his sword through the eye socket of a fallen enemy soldier before catching up. He's the pinnacle of professionalism. Going for a fight to the death and just make sure. Let's keep going. Uh, uh Yeah, he's... A trained soldier, and also he's got to stay by Kat's side because she's moving forward to uh, really engage with the hunter again in a a fight that goes fine. Uh, and she's going to need him because that's kind of his entire role in the in the Legion right now. Capital R role or lowercase role? Right now, lowercase. Generally, yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
Both? Yeah, all, yeah, all That's the way through. That's the thing. As they go to fight Hunter, Catherine says, steady, adjutant, steady and careful. And it is lowercase. He's not in the fullness of his name, and sometimes it shows. However, despite not being in the fullness of his name, and in fact, not even being in the beginning stages, other than just the potential is there. Uh, he's in the fullness of our hearts. He's in the fullness of our hearts. He's also engaging in a fight with a name. And, you know, we've got Hunter against Hawkerm and Cat. And Hawkerm is upset because it's a difficult fight, but he moves to flank and uh, is actually making a difference here. These early fights in this story are so interesting because Hakram was is fighting against somebody who was trained, kind of, by Ranger or at least trained near Ranger, which still counts for something. And yet Hunter is struggling in this fight. He's going up against Cat, who's young, very inexperienced, trained by some of the best, yes, but very inexperienced. He's going up against Hakram, who's basically just a guy right now, and he's struggling. It, it's... I, I don't know. I'm I'm curious what your thoughts on this are, whether this is uh, that Hunter is not great at fighting, if uh, this is just early enough in the story that the actual comparative power of names compared to regular folk just haven't been fully established yet, exactly what that means. I, I don't know. It's just it's interesting to see basically a regular guy making a big difference against a name. Akram is not a regular guy, It's my view on this. And I don't just mean he's special because he's with Catherine, though he is. He has a role in her story, which elevates him. Mm-hmm. But he's not just a claimant. He is someone in this moment rising into his name. I admit this actually as far as I have read this chapter in a few years, so I'm not positive what happens next chapter or the chapter after, but he is really and truly coming into his name in this conflict, and that makes him far more than mundane. I don't think Cassidy, despite her powerful magics, would be able to contribute in the same capacity, even though she's extra special, and she would be able to contribute because she is extra special, but she's not name stuff. I don't even think that if we were to assume incorrectly that his name is not a name, editors don't do the thing, Robber would be able to contribute to the fight. Except we know that Robert is, in fact, Robber. So, you know. But otherwise. Yeah, I guess it's hard to say on balance for individuals because non-named people do affect the outcome of fights all the time, whether it's sharpers and fireballs or upcoming bargain yeah exactly i i I don't know it's a weird line to draw and yes hawkham's on his way but i don't know how much yes he's got a nascent name but i don't know how much that means as far as is creation backing up his claim at this point well enough for it to actually affect anything he hasn't earned his name if he's only a claimant like or not even a claimant because i don't know that there's that kind of competition at this point since he's so early is he actually able to fit into that groove yet in a way that protects him Uh, it's really hard to tell where that begins i don't know that we get a clear answer on that they want one we do however get a clear answer on how durable hunter is the answer is not uh cat is able to uh 
Cat and Hawkeye together are able to get the better of Hunter. Uh, our, our dear protagonist makes a, an attack that is meant to cut Hunter's throat, which is a, an attack towards his neck, and he throws up a hand to block the attack. Ooh, he's and, got super strong hands? And Cat cuts straight through the bone, all the way through, and his hand is off. Oh, you gotta hand it to her. I'm sorry. Ooh. That was insensitive. But, uh, you know, give Cat a hand. I'm... No. Um, <laughs> Fortunately... Sorry, just... Go ahead. Oh, no. I'm gonna remain hands-off with this part of the pot. Oh. Wow. You really got them all today, huh? I just feel like I'm putting my hand in my mouth. Sorry, foot in my mouth. Ugh. Cat uh, <laughs> Cat moves forward. She's got a huge advantage now. He's injured. He's uh, going to be fighting less capably since he's uh, missing one of his grippers. And she plans to finish the job and gives us a fantastic line. She says, There were only so many hands he could sacrifice to save his neck, and his stock was fast running out. There is something very, very, very good about referring to one's hands as a stock of hands having you know normally two uh being (laughs) the stock of hands you can burn through for some purpose it's very good that's very handsome phrasing i'm sorry uh catherine notes then with no context the only warning i got was an itch between my shoulder blades we all know what's going on here oh her spidey sense is tingling but this is, I think, perhaps the first sign we get that she has this level of preternatural awareness. She's fighting an enemy on one side, but then on the other hand, I'm sorry, on the other shoulder blade, she gets this itch. She knows an attack's coming, and she gets shot, but not in the heart, so it's good. That's wild! Who knew names were this strong? Yeah, I mean, she gets, she's gets. she got some quick reaction speeds and some, some twitchy, uh, I don't know, not foresight, but... Uh, just reflexes before this, but yeah, the not even looking in the same direction prevent yourself from getting absolutely destroyed by an arrow. Nice job. That's cool. Also, an arrow that punched directly through her plate, so uh, probably a good one to dodge, partially. So, Catherine does get shot, a little bit, by an archer. Callum shows up and blasts fire at the archer, but Catherine takes stock of what she's got. She's got her mage line. She's got the apprentice. She's got her right hand. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. She's got her adjutant. But there's a certain little sneaky underhanded. I'm sorry again. I'm so sorry. Her goblin's not here. Robber isn't here. She wonders if they took another route. And she says, weeping heavens, Robber. Now isn't the time to get fancy on me. Where's her trust? Like, you should not trust Robber as far as you can throw him. Don't get me wrong. But you also, Catherine, should trust in him fully. Wherever he is, he's doing the best thing, which is the worst thing. And you don't want the details, just accept it. Yeah, uh, you can't trust Robert to necessarily follow any kind of plan. But you can trust him to just sort of rob her around. You know, it's Robin time, Robin all over everybody, the classics. It's robber in time? That's not better. But what's even more not better? Not er better? Mm-hmm double plus unbetter is that as she starts quipping with the lone swordsman who shows up because of course he does only when there's a big group because of course right as a lone swordsman should exactly a badly strung loot goes dun 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 
And both the swordsman and Catherine look at this wayward bard, and she says, I will not apologize for art, you Callowin Hicks. And it's just a shame that I end up having to hate her because I really like her. The early bard, before we know what she is, is honestly phenomenal. Basically, up until Black, up until the interlude where Black quote unquote kills her, uh, she's fantastic and i absolutely love having her on screen and after that she's still fantastic as a character in a story i love but leave cat alone dang it and why should she leave cat alone when cat is busy leaving her own people alone to die brutal uh cat uh looks around her and sees how badly things are going for some of the people around her uh the other legionaries the fact that uh the apprentice is in a difficult fights and hawkram is hawkerming and she says a sliver of cold went up my spine while i'd been bantering my people had been fighting for their lives dying how could i have lost sight of that for even a moment and her stance on that on this topic of banter and when is appropriate shifts pretty drastically throughout this story and it's very amusing to see where it is at this point where how how could i dare banter in such a dangerous and then later on it's sort of just if you're not bantering then what's going on it feels weird this doesn't seem like it's the woe anymore later on when she's working with when she's working against kairos you feel like they've got the most collegial relationship of anyone in the series they're just old friends who rib each other and it's great and it means they love each other that would have done so well in the age of wonders also, she wouldn't have been able to bear it, but ignore that. Right. So at this point, there are five named against Catherine's two plus Hakram. Yep. But on the other hand, one of their named is injured. Hunter wouldn't be much of a threat, Catherine tells us, crippled as he was. And she's absolutely right that losing a hand is definitely a downgrade for him. I imagine that any character who loses a hand will probably have to be written out of the story very quickly, mm-hmm. unable to contribute for the entire series most beloved of characters and anything more than a hand and you're really out uh but first of all he's a hero so he cheats secondly he's named so he cheats and third you're beginning to try to count him out so that helps him careful yeah cat's estimation of the balance in this fight is definitely an interesting one because after that poorly done comment she goes on to explain to herself to us william alone would be a pain though given the brutal fighting drills captain had put me through i was confident i could handle him hey cat uh your little necromancy trick probably won't work a second time because he's not going to count you out again uh you just now barely beat hunter and he's not even a direct combat name uh let's you're not going to beat the lone swordsman in a direct fight. She keeps thinking she's going to. The guy's a sword, like, sword is in his name. He's a fighting name. Your name means I follow a knight around and do what he says. There's there's a gap there. And I understand, and we'll see that it's not as wide a gulf given certain aspects available to be drawn on. But come on, Cat. The guy's not, you should not feel confident you can handle it. You should maybe say, I might be able to hold my own for a bit, at best. 
<laughs> her overconfidence here is astounding. Also, she's fighting the swordsman herself in a duel. That leaves Apprentice and Hawkram to fight four, well, three and a half if you count Hunter's only half because he's injured. Three and a half named for those two. So still not great odds. No, Hawkram, we have reason to believe, is a little more than we previously thought. Yeah. Cat uh, checks in on Hawkram. He says he's doing all right. And she replies, try not to get yourself killed, Adjutant. Adjutant is capitalized here. I don't know if this means he's transitioned into his name in this fight. Seems unlikely. Seems like this is maybe more of just a, this is his title. This is maybe a, a, a text issue. I'm not sure. Because it's a weird transition right here. But... Uh, I'm willing to read into it enough and say, yep, he's getting there. And then in this moment of excitement for Hawkeye, we also have Billiam show up and say, touching, you have a pet. Thief, take care of that thing. And it's just every time he talks. This guy is the worst. I really want him to get stabbed. That's, that's it. There's no complication here. Yeah, yeah. Uh... So he, he wants Thief to take care of Hawkram, and uh, Thief moves forward and uh, wants uh, the Bumbling Conjurer to keep Z's busy. And then she says, you up for another round, big guy? I've still got an itch to scratch. Hawkram's very uncomfortable <laughs> with that. Uh, he says, I'm not really comfortable with the slant you're putting on this fight. Hawkram admitted, tone alarmed. This whole scene right here is or this this little byplay here is phenomenal given their later relationship. This is so excellent. And also, nice job, Viv. Like, really, really give it to him. <laughs> As we go on in the fight, Catherine is very careful about William's sword, which is a nasty one, if you've been paying any attention. And she doesn't want to pit her goblin steel against it again because it will lose again. She knows this. And she tells us this is one of the reasons why she'd made such a point out of sparring with Captain, since only an idiot would try to block the gargantuan woman's hammer. Well, that's cool. She is fighting a guy whose sword you can't block, so she fought against a woman whose hammer you can't block. That makes sense. It all adds up nicely. I just like this detail. It's great. Yeah. Nice job, Kat. It, it's good planning. It's a nice little thing to drop in the fight. It's great. Full agree. What isn't great is the feeling she gets when William's blade lights up like a star and he swings at her with the, air, with the very air shrieking as a wave of blinding power tears in her direction. She tells us it was like getting kicked by a horse and swallowing a bright stick at the same time. That's bad. Yep. Uh, descriptive. Like, I've never been kicked by a horse. I've never swallowed a bright stick. And I've got a pretty vivid understanding about what it's like to get hit by that sword. My understanding is I would regret surviving. <laughs> Fair, yeah. But that's only the beginning of the troubles because Catherine ends up surrounded. Catherine ends up shieldless. Catherine ends up in a real pickle. Yep, she does. And that's not the worst place for her to be. She's she's commenting that uh, they that the heroes would assume that she's outmatched, hopelessly out of her league. And they're right, but Kat's got an ace up her sleeve, uh, and the way that this chapter ends is Kat giving us this. <clears throat> I smiled a devil's smile, and my name howled, raging, 
at the struggle ahead of me. You want to go, swordsman? I laughed. Veins flooded with power. Let's go, then. This is great. Cat is fully, intentionally, and openly calling on an aspect for a fight for a specific purpose here. Not a, not the passive uh, power and constant work of learn or the brief instant of power she was drawing on before when she was, uh, you know, not fully in tune with her name, but just grabbing struggle and using it to fight a whole lot of people who are definitely better than she is. And uh, that's... That's where we pick up next chapter, and I'm very excited for it. But, unfortunately... Tragically. Tragically. All the time that we have for today, folks. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, as we discuss... Huntacide. Handicide. And attempted hunkicide. You can hunk my side any day. Wait in their blood. We can't do this. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing erratic erratas, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Enter music for this episode with Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Chill Abstract Parenthesis Intention Parenthesis by Coma Media. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter or whatever it's called at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, contributions, anything else? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at the longprice at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work find our patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art and access at least one patron exclusive tangent we implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting all the artists who make this possible special thanks to our patron and villainous hero gray our patron and liege always a claimant never the name our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 10, Release.